Our passage today is 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to, who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, uh, my name is Jay. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. If you are visiting, please don't base your opinion on what the preaching event <laughs> is normally like. Uh, thank you, Dylan, for doing such a great job every week. You do a great job. Always reminded of that when you have to actually do that, and you're reminded of the, just the weight of that. It's a big task, and, and so very appreciative of that. Um, do something I, I would not normally ever do, but I do want to recognize something that's pretty special to me, and that's uh, my grandpa is here today, and he was a pastor for 47 years at a local body, and that's really awesome and really impressive, and uh, he's recently got to move uh, to Enid, and so for the first time ever, he's got to hear me preach after watching him my whole life, so that's pretty cool to me. Um, not that I need any other reason to be emotional, because I'm not very emotional, uh, but uh, honor him. Don't shake his hands because of COVID, but um, that's very honor. Uh, that's, that's an honor for me this morning. But second and third John, <clears throat> as we mentioned our last week, are to the two shortest books of the New Testament. And today, third John is the shortest in the Greek. Uh, and I like that. It's unique. It's, it's, the brevity of it is unique. Uh, J- Dylan got to spend two full weeks on a short book. I have to do the whole thing in one. So I hope you didn't drink too much coffee. Uh, I, I will tr- I'm going to go fast. I all of my editing was aimed at getting this all in, so uh, you're, you're going to be okay. But it's, it's very unique also because it's super personal. Uh, a lot, there's other books in the New Testament written to individuals, the pastoral epistles to Timothy's, right, um, to Titus, but those were meant to be circulated right when they were gotten. And it's not that the Third John wasn't circulated around. I mean, we're still, it was canonized and we're being encouraged by it today. But it is more personal than those. It is addressed to this individual named Gaius. It's not like Second John was a, more general to the elect lady, which we think was the local church. Uh, furthermore, there's, the structure kind of flows around just three names. Gaius, the guy it's addressed it to. That's why it's called the good, the bad, and the commendable. It's addressed to Gaius. Uh, the bad would be a guy named Diotrephes, as you just heard. Pretty funny. He likes to put himself first. You don't need to say too much more than that. I'm not a great guy. Um, and then the third guy I mentioned today is a guy named Demetrius. And uh, you have to love it when God names names in the Bible. That's when you know you've really done a bad job. But uh, the historical context and, and what's going on is that the author of our whole book that we've been reading, uh, the epistles of John, is sending this letter to Gaius, and he's probably delivered it by Demetrius. So the third guy that's mentioned today probably carried the letter to um, to Gaius from John, and he's a traveling preacher. Demetrius is one of the guys that you hear mentioned as a traveling preacher. And Diotrephes is either at that church as well, and John's going to come, or he's at a local church close to it. So as far as we know, the guy who got the letter, Gaius, is just a guy in the church. 
And that's actually pretty encouraging. Some, some commentators kind of treat him like he's a leader, but most don't. They probably didn't have, as, we, as, as much as we know, he probably didn't have a position in the, in the local church. The way he led was by serving, as we see. And that makes me, there's no formal title, and that, that encourages me. There's a lot of Gaiuses here, as I th- think about Sojourn. There's a lot of Gaiuses um, here at Sojourn. And so we can take 3 John at a simple face value. It's just a letter written to an individual in a church, and that's what we are. We're individuals in a church. We're just sitting here this morning reading a letter written by an apostle to us, which is pretty cool because they did that 2,000 years ago. They got to do the same thing. So I love the uniqueness of that and the simplicity, although he does hit a couple themes that he's been talking about. He's been hitting on truth a lot and last week on hospitality. So we, we actually um, continue on in the hospitality theme this week. So uh, we don't, like I said about Gaius, we don't know much more than that. Uh, there were not... <clears throat> There's four Gaiuses in the New Testament. This is probably not any of them because this area is in Asia. Gaius was a super popular name because there's only really 12 popular names uh, in the Roman world at the time, Uh, 18 total, but only 12 that were first names, as they call them, and Gaius was one of them, so it's almost like an everyman situation. It's, It's really common, but the thing that's not common that you see is that John has a bond with him. That's super strong. And so in the, in the original there, that well-beloved, let's read, if you look with me at the first two verses again, to the elder, that's John, <clears throat> to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now he says that well, that beloved there actually is even stronger in the original. It's well-beloved. And he says it again in verse 5, and he says it again in verse 11, and then he calls him his child in verse 4. So there is something of all the everyman commonness, commonality of this, that's not common. John has a very strong affinity for Gaius. He's done something. We don't know if he led him to Christ. um, But what we do know, if we just use the text here, the thing that makes Gaius really uh, commendable to John is that he was just living according to the truth. And, I mean, he could have said there in in the very first verse that I truly love you or I love you truly. He says something different. He makes a theological statement. It's whom I love in truth. And that was a huge, truth has been a huge theme in the epistles of John. Apostle, the apostle has great concern for truth and love. And he's been walking in this. And you can hear, hear that when people have left the body. Because remember the context, people have left the body. And there's been this mass secession from the local body over a false teaching. So you see this apostle, this John, who's you know, probably my grandpa's age, looking down and seeing a young man who's actually stayed, and he feels this great affinity for him. I, don't, I thought of a good analogy all week, and I'm not good like Dylan. Like, Dylan is so good at analogies. I don't know how he comes up with them. But on this one, I actually thought of something. Um, it's probably terrible, but I'm going to say it. I said it. Um, it's almost like if you are, you know, the coach of a team, and you get a, a, a job offer for more money somewhere else. And it seems like a way better situation. You know, you kind of leave the fold like we have here. And you might even, like, poach the roster of the team you came from and try to make your other team better. And, and in the end, you have this one guy who stays, this Gaius, who he didn't leave with all the secession, the false teaching. Um, and in the midst of all the selfish decisions... He stays, and you can imagine this, like, once again, this elderly pastoral figure, he's a program guy, right? He gives him a pat on the back for his loyalty and his truth, right? That's probably terrible, um, but I said it, and I'm a football (laughs) fan, so. If you're not from Oklahoma, I'm talking about Lincoln Riley, all right? (laughs) That's that's what I'm talking about, if that all went over your head. Uh, (laughs) I'm not hurt, you're hurt. Verse 2, verse 1 is a unique greeting because of that. Like I said, he really went down into whom I love in truth. It's a theological statement. Verse 2 is actually not very unique. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And it seems like something we could just pass over as an introduction, but there is some meat there. Um, It was a very common phrase. And the reason I say it's not unique is that phrase is in a lot of secular letters as well. This whole idea of may it go well with you and that you may be in good health as well as your soul. 
There's, in fact, I thought this was kind of funny. I didn't know this, but how sometimes kids text abbreviations like LOL, or hopefully that's the worst you ever abbreviation you ever text. But um, kids do that all the time, and maybe even adults now. But they're actually, in a lot of ancient Greek letters, they had an abbreviation for this whole greeting. You know, I don't know what the, the Latin or the Greek was, but it's pretty interesting that they did that way back then. It was, it was very common. Um, and so I don't want to get too far into this, but I don't want to read too far into it and say that he's talking about Gnostics here who separate them. You know, that's a little bit later anyway. But he did obviously pin this for a reason. I do want to say something here that I think is very important because the Apostle John would have not just done a general greeting for no reason if this was canonized especially. And so the main thing here that John is saying is that it's very possible to be spiritually healthy and physically sick, which is a complete destruction of the prosperity gospel, right? The prosperity gospel being those who say you need health and well-being to accompany you if you are a Christian. And conversely, that if you're sick or poor, it's because you lack faith. And John is saying here that it's the spiritual health that's the standard uh, that which physical health should be measured, not the other way around. So, in fact, I think you can make an argument. I, I believe Paul makes an argument against the contrary, that you only get more spiritually healthy as you grow in wisdom in God, which a lot of times also coincides with age. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 4.16. As his body grows more unhealthy and his spirit grows more healthy, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So we do take care and pray for the outer self as well. Jesus did this all the time when he healed people, right? He healed people all the time to get to the physical so that it would be a window into the spiritual. And Christians meet spiritual needs and physical needs. We get out of step when we try to separate those. Uh, one author said it really well. He just says, John gives us a good example of praying for health and well-being. We need not try to be more spiritual than the Bible. And the more I thought about this, I thought, I, mean, I think Americans really fall hard on this one side. But then I thought about it more, and I, I think maybe it's, it's both. We can easily care way more about our bodies and do way more to maintain physical health by diet, exercise, discipline, and then neglect to do that spiritually. Uh, one of the small group questions this week I thought would be good to be thinking about what, what are the, if you do that physically, what are the, you know, spiritual ways of diet, physical exercise and nutrition? Like, what are the spiritual forms of that that we see in the scripture? That's a great way to kind of um, see what that looks like. So that'll be a small group question um, this week. You can be thinking that way. But um, I think you're, some of you, though, might go, um, maybe you're like me, and you're like, I need help in both, <laughs> right? I need some discipline physically. I'm not going to stand up here and be like, yeah, my physical discipline is way better than my spiritual. Like, nope. And vice versa. At the same time, I need help in both. Um, but a great filter, I think, would be that when we pray, are we praying more for physical maladies than for spiritual health? Or is it balanced? I hope it's balanced, right? It's, it's a little bit of both. It's not, a, it's not an either or. It's a both and. But we can easily get out of balanced. Uh, I think we've all been in a small group where someone's just praying for their friend's grandma's foot. And then you got somebody who's like really struggling with something and they're laying their hearts open, right? Are you prone to that? Are you prone to just do the spiritual or just the physical or vice versa? Let's be balanced. Um, verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Remember, John's writing a letter to Gaius. He's saying, some people came and told me how awesome you're being. I rejoiced greatly, and indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So what's happening here, like I said, is that the brothers are the Christian missionaries. They've been traveling around. They get back to John because they've traveled through Gaius' church, and they report back to John, hey, guess what? Gaius didn't secede. He didn't leave with everyone. He is walking in the truth. He's a great, hospitable host. Um, he's doing a great job. His conduct is matching what you're teaching about the truth, what you've been saying, and all that it entails. He's pretty repetitive, John is. You hammer home fundamentals in anything you do in life that you want to be good at, and John's hammering the fundamental of walking in truth. Um, it's, it's a little different than some of the linear style of Paul, if you're used to that apostle. It's more circular and thematic, but that's what John does, and he does it again here. We can forcefully, he says, in fact, I think in 1 John, if I read this right, that he said either know or know this like 36 times, talking about truth. We can know this. We don't have to 
um, wonder about. And he can speak very forcefully and truthfully like John does. He spoke very boldly, directly, and forcefully against the lies of those people were speaking who had left the truth. And we can do the same thing. Uh, Gaius has remained strong. He's doing the right thing. He's walking in the truth. And John is living and dying for the same gospel. So, man, that bonds you together. And that's what is happening in this, in this passage. I think this would be super encouraging for Gaius to hear. You see his, John's pastoral heart on full display because you, you probably know this if you have children, if you feel this, the, the only thing you want for them is for them to choose to follow God. It's an awesome feeling. I was uh, here last week, and there was a, there was a couple kids in college that um, are going to go into the ministry together on staff. They're going to get married. And, you know, uh, I heard Pastor Ryan say, man, this is just like that verse in, next week in, in verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You guys know what that feels like, that mixture of, I don't know, humility that it brings, but also just gratefulness and joy, and they all flow together. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, the question that we have to ask ourselves um, is when, when we just think what brings us no greater joy, is it what verse 4 says? Is it that we've been able to pour into and love on those around us, younger than us, older, whatever, and that that brings us no greater joy? I think a lot of times we substitute no things that bring us no greater joy. Uh, maybe it's a job promotion. You know, we've been working really hard. Maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's a plane you get. Maybe it's, in my line of work, maybe it's a championship. Maybe it's your kid succeeding and getting into an awesome college or being a star athlete, your retirement fund growing large. All those things are okay, but they can't become ultimate things, right? I think if you ask any parent here that's walking with God, the one thing they want is that their kid would walk in truth. Um, I don't mean to mention them, but I'm going to, so sorry if, if you're mad at me for this, but I talked to Wendy and Steven last week. I was like, hey, how's Connor doing? First thing, faces just beam, and I know what that means. Oh, he's great. He's really plugged in with this group. He's walking in truth at school. Nothing about how the college is great, his grades are great, whatever. It's about he's plugged into the ministry, he's doing great. That's what it looks like. I want that one day for my kids, and I, want, I, know, I know that you that are going to be parents want the same thing, and if you don't have your own kids, it's other people that you poured into, like John here right? People that you poured into walking in the truth. So what brings you no greater joy? And are you doing the things in life that are going to lead to that one day? A great question to ask ourselves. Verse five, beloved it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So John transitions from the greeting into kind of a charge for Gaius. And this is the same charge. This is the meat of the letter for us, reading it 2,000 years later. It's brought much joy to John's heart. In a way, it's the flip side of what Dylan preached last week. When he told the leaders, hey, don't house support and give hospitality to those traveling missionaries that are fake. There were some fake ones going around. In a lot of ways, 3 John is the opposite. He's saying, do do the good things, do the hospitality, do the support to the people who are actual missionaries. You see this in a couple places. The people who are not confessing the coming of Christ in the flesh, don't house them. Because if you house them, like last week, you're taking part in a false gospel when you do that. In today's letter, he's doing a great job. He's like, Gaius, you're the opposite of Second John. Um, you're housing, showing hospitality, and showing actual authentic missionaries. Uh, Dylan did touch on a little bit what hospitality really meant back then. It was different. Um, there weren't Motel 8s, as Dylan said, or Holiday Inns. There weren't maps, apps that you could figure out which road to leave leading town. In fact, if you were hosting somebody, you would leave. It would be kind of a, a half-day deal. If someone left your house, you would walk with them a good part of their first journey to make sure that they not only set out in the right direction, but they took the right road leaving town, getting through town, and then, you know, it could be really bad to take a road going the wrong way. It's the middle of the night. You don't know where you're at. You had to have somebody to kind of host you when you were going. It was a life and death deal. Um, if you didn't, you were kind of taking your life into your own hands. So hospitality, when you read that here, don't read it like how we think hospitality. We think hospitality, and not that ours is bad, we think hospitality normally is, you know, taking a meal to somebody when they're not doing good, maybe hosting a home group, um, you know, doing things like that. And those, I'm not undermining those. That's 
hospitality for us, but it is deeper for these people um, at this time. I told, I was talking to Sarah Davis this week about um, a book she was recommending called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. If you want to know more about it, ask her. She gave me a great summary, Rosaria Butterfield. And it's super practical, and it talks a lot about what um, hospitality might look like for us uh, and, and just picks up on that teaching that we can be radically ordinary. <laughs> it's, it's sometimes the most radical thing that we can do to do the ordinary things in, in obeying God. And hospitality is one of those, especially taking care of strangers like Gaius is doing. Um, and I want to show you kind of a quote uh, to show you how life and death it was back then. Um, I'm not, once again, undermining our hospitality, but this is different because in this time, also, it's talking about showing hospitality to strangers. It's not people you know. It's not people in your home group that you can, you're pretty sure they're not going to light your house on fire. This is, you don't know who these people are, right? And so one author said this, hospitality then is something a person provides not for family or friends, but for strangers. They need such hospitality, otherwise... They will be treated as non-human because they are potentially a threat to the community. Strangers had no standing in law or custom, and therefore they needed a patron in the community they were visiting. There was no universal brotherhood in the ancient Mediterranean world. That's a pretty significant statement, and it shows so much more that when you read this letter, what Gaius was doing was a bigger deal than what we think at face value. It was more than hosting a home group. Um, and that's why John mentions Gaius' faithfulness to strangers in verse 5. He's saying that the way that you acted towards strangers has been reported back here in our church. Um, I wanted to go a little deeper here. I'm not going to do this, but um, once again, in the home group questions, I'll let you guys do this. There's an early Christian teaching called the Didache, and it, was, it actually was a, kind of a cool little manual to set forth. A lot of Christians had questions like, what does it mean to be hospitable, or how should I fast, or what should I look like? I don't want to be legalistic like the Pharisees were. How do I do this? And the Didache actually puts forth some of these things. How do you know you're not, how do you know what a real teacher is that's traveling, a real itinerant teacher versus someone who's false? And it actually, some of the things they list are interesting. If you stayed more than one day, you were considered a false teacher. Um, I think maybe we can make our own Didache about like home group rules. Like, <laughs> you know, should we do that? Probably not. That'll get legalistic really quick because we're sinners. But um, it's an interesting question to ask ourselves um, at the time. It was kind of a code of ethics. But it was expected for the Christians to treat this messenger like the one who sent them, like we would want to do today, um, for the missionaries risking their lives to proclaim the gospel for the sake of the name. Um, let's read it, verse 7. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Paul speaks to this in 2 Corinthians 8, this glad generosity to take care of these missionaries who've gone out for the sake of the name. Read with me, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I want you to notice the Corinthians' attitude there, or the churches of Macedonians' attitude. Uh, that's something that's going to be severely contrasted in a second. And he's going to talk about what it looks like to give for the sake of the name versus just a Normal way of living, the, uh, giving, the way the world would normally give. The, the last verse of chapter 6, or sorry, the last word of verse 6 is important, um, ecclesia. You guys know what that means, church. Um, you testified to love before the church. Um, I think we say this a lot around here, but it's important. This is a specific local church. This letter is written to a guy really involved in a local church, and hospitality was charged to him in a local church. Um, he uses that term actually three times. It's, it's not the broad um, church it's talking about here. It's just implied. What I'm trying to say is this is implied that this local community of believers, and it was even organized, right, because later on Diotrephes has kind of a part in the church, and he is in trouble for that. Um, but we see that this local community is just the context for receiving this admonition. And I don't want to skip over a very obvious 
um, point. So back to verse 7. Like I said, these missionaries have set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Uh, for the sake of the name is a beautiful, a beautiful phrase. It's used many times in the Bible. Um, but to understand the full depth of what he's contrasting with Gaius' hospitality and going out for the sake of the name, all these missionaries, what he's contrasting is something we don't get because we don't have the same cultural waters. We don't swim in the same sea that they swam in. But in their day, there was a lot of traveling teachers. They were everywhere. And that's kind of part of education for them in those days. Aristotle started this. Um, you don't have to know this word at all, but you're going to see it a couple times in a quote, so I'll mention it. Um, it's called the peripatetic style, meaning that it came to mean someone who traveled around to teach, an itinerant teacher. And in this day, there was a lot of that, and anyone who read this would get exactly what he's talking about. They would exactly understand the contrast between what a Christian traveling teacher is like and maybe a peripatetic or a Greek, whatever, a cynic or a stoic or an Epicurean would go around. And these people would go around, and if you were a really good teacher, they would pay you. And you would say, oh, that dude's a really good Epicurean philosopher. I want my kid to grow up like that. I'm going to give you money. And they would live off of your money. So you would pay for where you stayed and how you ate and things if you were a good teacher. And you could even, if you were really good, you could actually become, you kind of do what Paul took advantage of this in Acts when he rented out the lecture hall of Tyrannus for like two years to just teach the gospel for two full years in Ephesus and spread the gospel to thousands and thousands. But that was a normal thing back then. And so when you see um, John contrasting that, he's trying to say, look at how everyone else does education. We, it's traveling around, you pay someone for it, it's an exchange for goods. And if you go out for the sake of the gospel, it's different. You don't get money, we don't want you to go out and get money and get paid for this. It's a free, freely you've received, freely you will give, right? The gospel is free, it's the good news of Jesus Christ, and we're supported by other Christians along the way whose heart has been changed. It should be a way to testify to the other world, to the rest of the world, what it looks like. Imagine if the missionaries at Sojourn, and this is why our missionaries don't do this today. They don't go across seas and say, hey, I came all the way across the world and I need you to pay me so I can tell you about this free grace. We don't do that. That's a standard and it was set early on by the Christians. They didn't do this and that's why hospitality is so important. This isn't a thing that they weren't going to get paid because they're super good at teaching cynicism or stoicism. It was they had to be taken care of by the Christians or they would die quite possibly. This principle goes all the way back. There's a few times in the New Testament, four times. In fact, one time they try to pay Paul in Corinth and he gets in trouble because he's like, no. They don't understand why. They're trying to do the worldly way of doing it and Paul doesn't accept it and they kind of get mad at him. But you can trace this all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 14 when they try to pay him, the king of Sodom tries to pay him for services rendered and he's like, no, I can't do that. I want to make sure everyone knows that what I got came from the Lord. So these early Christians were very countercultural. Um, there's a slide I have. One author said there were numerous peripatetic street preachers. That means traveling street preachers from religious and philosophical cults. And they greedily, avariciously solicited funds from their audiences. And we know there's no shortage of that, I guess, today on TV. Probably see a lot of that. People you wonder, like, why? What's their motivation when you have three $10 million houses or whatever? Um, what's your motivation for preaching the gospel? And these Christians said, no, we want to be Completely the opposite of this. Um, that word in, in verse 7, Gentiles, <clears throat> it's a little different. It's not the normal Greek word used there. And I want to mention that to you because I want you to think I know Greek. I don't. Just kidding. It's not why I'm mentioning it to you. Um, but the word there is, it normally Greek or Gentiles just means somebody who's not a, a Jew. Right? But here it actually means non-believers. It's going because a Gentile could be a Christian. Like, uh, you're, I'm guessing a lot of you are Gentiles but you're Christians. Um, this is actually talking about a non-believer. The word is closer to pagan. And I mentioned to you, that to you for that reason. Um, it changes the meaning of the verse because he's trying to say that we should do things way different than the world does. And Jesus uses that term in the same way in Matthew 20. If you look at with me on the board here, I have some slides, I believe, um, of Matthew 20, verse 21 and 22. When Jesus fields a really terrible question, which he does a lot, this might be the worst, I don't know. It's pretty bad. Um, and in verse 21 of chapter 20, this mother comes up to Jesus 
and says, um, hey, my, put my kids on your left and right in the kingdom, in the coming kingdom. She doesn't even actually ask. It's maybe not even a question. It's almost a demand. And Jesus kind of says to her, you don't even know what you're asking. You have no idea what you just said. And he says, do you think that they can drink the cup I'm going to drink? And the cup he's talking about is the wrath of God the Father poured out on him for every sin, past, present, and future. So no, of course they can't drink that cup. And Jesus, uh, or actually these two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, they're, they think they can. They're like, oh yeah, I think I can do that. And Jesus kind of laughs. That's possibly the most arrogant answer in scripture, um, which is hard to do. Yeah, we're able. Jesus is like, okay, well actually you're going to drink my cup because he knows how they're going to die. Um, but he does then go on to address the rest of the disciples. And I think it's really important. Um, the other 10 are mad. In verse 24, the other 10 apostles that hear the mom's question are really mad that they asked um, this question, or she asked this question. We always joke around that um, this is not the first time, like there was moms back then that thought their kids were the best too. This is not a new thing. Um, uh, Zebedee's wife was a good example. But when they're mad, when the other 10 disciples are mad, they're not even mad at the right thing. When you read it, they're just mad that someone else is going to get a head start. They're not mad that that's not a for the sake of the name type of question. They're mad that, oh, man, I wanted to be first in the kingdom when we got to rule. And it's not good. So Jesus says this famous line in verse 25. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, like the Gentiles, the same way it's used here in our passage, they lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So the contrast here with how Jesus uses Gentiles and how John uses Gentiles is the same. The world does one thing, things one way, and Christians are to do things a different way. That's what he's trying to say. We aren't to be pushing for power in this context or authority in the world first and foremost. And in our context today, we aren't to be, as Paul says, peddlers of the gospel, right, which is basically what an Epicurean, Stoic, whatever is. They're peddling a philosophy, getting paid for it. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, for we are not like so many. Notice that, once again, false teachers in this time are so many. So many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And Gaius was a man of sincerity. He was going out for the sake of the name and he was housing people. That's why he understood why people were coming through that were going out for the sake of the name. He got it. Remember what Jesus said about authority and Gentiles, ironically, kind of a, is exactly what happens later on with Diotrephes. Um, and Diotrephes it is a bad guy, not only because of what he did, which was the opposite of hospitality. He was turning these people away, um, as Lindsay read, but because he wanted to exercise authority wrongly in the, in the body. He literally did exactly what Jesus warned against in Matthew 20. He's the opposite of doing the work for the sake of the name. So if Gaius is the good, obviously, in the good, the bad, and the commendable, Diotrephes is the bad. Before I talk about him really quick, let's look at verse 8. Just a summary. Therefore, therefore, there's a good line, marker for you. We ought to support people like this, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And I think that's really important that we just mention really quick. We talk a, long, a lot of, around here about sometimes you go and sometimes you get to send. And it's the same. You're supporting what you're sending. You don't always get to go. And we need to caution against elevating one status over another. <clears throat> but the idea is the flip side of what Dylan taught last week in, verse, in 2 John verse 11 when he said that if we support false teachers, uh, we're sharing in their antichrist behavior. And uh, we, we, just like we share in the sin of heretical teachers, we should support them. Here we share in the truth when we support workers of the truth. So let's share in the right things. And we don't need the unbelieving world to help us do that. We don't need a tax write-off to help us do this, right? We want to do this on our own, out of our own, for the sake of the name. So, uh, verse 9 and 10, let's read about Diotrephes. <clears throat> I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Man, that's a bad way to have your name in the Bible. So, if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want, who want to and puts them out of the church. So he's almost like practicing a 
messed up form of church discipline, which he's going to have practiced on him a little bit later on. There's some authority here that John brings. Um, one thing that is to note about Diotrephes is that there's actually nothing heretical about his belief here, his teaching. So far in 1 John, a lot of the things we've been mentioning, maybe there's something I'm missing, but almost everything has been an addressing of heresy. So here, Diotrephes isn't even teaching something heretical. He's just doing the wrong thing. Um, he's putting himself first. He's denying the apostle's letter. That's a bad idea. And then just letting pride and ambition rule over him. And I think that's obviously something we all can be prone to do. So quickly, look at how arrogance and pride is described in the scriptures. Well, here it's described. He likes to put himself first. That's really simple. right? We've all seen the person who's going to make decisions above you know, the decisions of the whole for themselves. And, I mean, that's really just watch, watch any NBA game. Right, um, it's like that's every that goes against everything I was taught in basketball was to play as a team, right? And then you see these guys just the hero ball, as you hear, you know, said. Sorry if you love NBA, um, but uh, it, it, we see that all in our culture, and, and the proverbs speak to this. Take a look at three quick proverbs. Proverbs six sixteen and seventeen says there are six games, six games, six things that the Lord hates, seven. That are an abomination to him, and haughty eyes is number one. Prideful haughty eyes is number one. Proverbs 8:13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 16:5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Wow. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. So look at the result of Diotrephes' pride. He's straight up denying an apostle. An apostle who was in the inner three, if you want to start to talk about his credentials, Peter, James, and John, right? Inner three. He saw everything. When you read through the apostles, he was, or the gospels, he was, those three were always there for everything. I mean, you're talking about not just an apostle. This isn't just Thomas. This is John, right? Not that we're supposed to do that, but um, bad example. But John also saw the risen Christ. Diotrephes is, nah, I don't think you know what you're talking about. He saw the crucified Christ. He's resisting. He was at the empty tomb. I mean, all of the things, right, that he was there for. And Diotrephes is resisting this. And he's kind of a Johnny-come-lately. You can imagine John like, what? He didn't listen to my letter? Can you imagine how ugly pride looks in that situation? Arrogance leads to ignorance. And it leads to rebellion. Proverbs 10, 18 says it leads to slander. And that's also what Diotrephes is doing in the church. He was slandering the pastor John. And he was slandering him to others in the body. And it looks a lot like the garden. Really eerily familiar, right? When Satan slanders God. When he says, did he really say that? And that was kind of the intro. He kind of snuck in. And then before long he was like, nah, you're not going to die. Completely contradicting him. Which is what it looks like, right? The pride leading to the arrogance and ultimately to undermining an apostle. One author said one of the most insidious things about pride is how it blinds us to its power. So I struggle. Like, what's the application here? Is it just that Diotrephes is terrible? Which he is. Satanic. Pretty did, he did a really terrible thing. Let's not like sweep that under the rug. I mean, he did ignore the plain teaching of an apostle, clearly handed down to him. Can't imagine anyone denying or ignoring writings of the apostles and their teaching as delivered in letters clearly handed down to us. I had, I had literally, for about a week, man, what, what's the point here, you know? And one author's like, what do you do every time you don't listen to a letter in the Word of God? Every time you don't obey one of the 1,050 commands of the New Testament, clearly handed down to us by one of the apostles. And that kind of struck me, because I'm, I would love to throw bombs at Diotrephes. I wanted to point fingers. <laughs> hey, man, I wasn't called out in the eternal Hananiah scripture. Maybe run through a list of people in my head that, you know, my 40 years I know have desired authority in the local body and tried to get it by gossiping, slandering. That's where I wanted to go, lying about leaders in the church. But scriptures don't let us do that, right? Scriptures divide our soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So 
I want us to not justify ourselves in our minds just thinking that Diotrephes was really bad and to disobey in a direct command from an apostle because of his pride and desire put before him because I'm doing the same. Like I'm the Diotrephes in the story. And so we need a gospel response to that. We have to remember our brokenness and God's faithfulness. Jesus will bring us humility, a humility that will lead us to love well. And I think there's an extra, if you're any sort of leader in sojourn, I do need to mention this. Diotrephes was probably in a position of authority in the church, not Gaius, we think. So this is even probably more poignant for those in leadership. We can't just say, don't be like Diotrephes and um, when he most likely was in a leadership position and then fail to look at how do we lead in the local body at sojourn. We just had an equip class this morning about this, how you can not care for people who have been wounded, um, how easy it is to fall into the abuse, spiritual abuse, and the likelihood of spiritual abuse and manipulation is always going to be higher when a model of ministry rewards ambition instead of servanthood. That's one of the reasons, and you've, if you've been around here a while, you know, but we all keep saying it, we'll keep beating the drum, but one of the reasons why we believe that the New Testament model of church leadership is a plurality of elders, a group of people submitting to one another um, and pastoring and being pastored by one another, a one among equals, um, is because of this. We want to guard against this. The word minister in scripture means to serve. And the disciples many times argued over who's going to be the greatest. Matthew 18, and like I just mentioned earlier in Matthew 20, and Jesus consist, consistently said, don't be like the Romans, don't be like the Gentiles, and hold us accountable at Sojourn as leaders. If our lifestyles are not a lifestyle of service, hold us accountable to that. And we'll work to hold each other accountable too. The word here used to describe Diotrephes is telling because it's basically saying it was his constant attitude to promote himself. And that's scary to read because I'm sure Diotrephes didn't set out to constantly promote himself. But pride, the insidiousness of pride took over after time. So God have mercy on us. And God protect us. That is a prayer that we need to pray all the time, every day. Pray for us. We pray as well. Now, if the title, the message is the good, the bad, and the commendable, I want to quickly speak to the commendable. John leaves the church on a positive note. It's a good, happy ending. And he does so by commending this third guy, Demetrius. Let's read verse 11 and 12. Beloved, do not imitate evil, <clears throat> but imitate good. Whatever, what, whoever does good is from God. Whoever do, does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Again, John makes it really simple in verse 11. He's just showed you what it looks like to do the evil thing, and he says in verse 11, don't imitate that. It's pretty simple. Just don't do that. Don't overthink it. Just don't do what Diotrephes has done. Instead, imitate someone trying to do good. And then he gives the name of Demetrius and said, here's a good example, which is a common thing. You would commend the person taking the letter so that you would accept him. Hey, this guy that's holding the letter, I'm sure Demetrius is like, oh, that was nice. That's cool to hear. Thanks. Thanks, John. But he was a traveling missionary pastor. Like, that's what he was doing, too. And so it was nice for him to hear that. Oh, thanks for saying, hey, take care of me. I, I appreciate that, right? Um, Diotrephes had been refusing hospitality to traveling Christian missionaries, and Demetrius is one. So it's okay to imitate. It's a good thing to imitate godly people. It's not deifying them, and, and you can probably all think of good godly characteristics and people that you know and love and Christians that encourage you. Paul does this twice in 1 Corinthians, three times in Thessalonians, twice in Hebrews, and Demetrius is committed here by three different witnesses. John goes kind of an extra mile here. He says, Hey, everyone in the area where I'm from knows Demetrius. Just so you know, when I say he's legit, he's legit. Everyone around here knows him. And then he says, um, just look at his life. The truth of the gospel is holding true. Demetrius practices what he's preaching. And then he just kind of pulls the apostle card. He gives us an apostolic, like, and just we, the royal we, apostolic we. They commend him, meaning the apostolic witness. So it's kind of cool that he does that for Demetrius. So the typical greetings here, I'll read really quick, and then I want to tie back in one thing before we take communion. Verse 13 said, I had much to write to you, but I would hope rather not write in pen and ink. 
I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face, just like he said last week. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. We see his pastoral voice again. He clearly thinks this issue. He, he didn't wait to do it face to face. He said, hey, this is really urgent. I'm going to write a letter. That's the only thing I can do right now. We can't FaceTime. I'm going to write a letter just to let you know. I know this is happening. So it's a pretty big deal in the church, this lack of hospitality and diatrophies. And also, it's a really big deal that Gaius is doing the right thing. And then he tells each other to greet each other by name, which is just another reminder that community is super important. It's supposed to be deeply, deeply personal. You may not know the name of everyone in the local body here. That's why we have small groups, so that you can know people, and you can know what they're walking through, and you can know how to pray for them and love and support them and encourage them. Christians are friends. So that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I, I did want to close in. I read another author break up the book this way, and I thought it was really good. I think it's a good way to close. He categorized the letter like this, and he extends it to all of us in all of the church. He said, either you take trouble for the gospel, meaning what Gaius and Demetrius and the apostle of John were doing, traveling the whole world, giving your life, risking your life daily to spread the word for the sake of the name. That's taking trouble, right? Voluntarily for the gospel. Voluntarily taking trouble for the gospel. And it's worth it. So either you take trouble for the gospel or you're the other type of person in the church, someone who makes trouble for the gospel. People who consistently stir up strife, disunity, in Diotrephes' case, people who desire to rule over others or ambitions to gain power and standing. Are you a person who takes trouble for the gospel or are you a person who makes trouble for the gospel? I am constantly encouraged at Sojourn of how many gospel takers there are. Um, there's a reason for that. I mean, I can't, even, I can't even tell you how many people just text me this week, just found out I was preaching, like, I'm praying for you, and I needed prayer this week, more than normal. Um, and, man, that's so encouraging, just to be in a body of believers so loving. There are so many Gaiuses and Demetriuses in this body, and there's a reason for that, and I think it goes back to that phrase in verse 7. I have it on the screen. You do things for the sake of the name because you've walked with Jesus, if you're someone who makes trouble for the gospel like diatrophies, or if you are one who really isn't know what it looks like yet to be motivated for the sake of the name, I have some really good news. Because in Matthew 20, the really terrible question that we talked about from the mother of the sons of Zebedee, um, if you look back at their sons who asked even answered in the more arrogant way, yes, we can take this cup. If you look back, what happens to them after they've traveled with Jesus? They, instead of being troublemakers for the gospel and living for themselves and for the worldly way, they live their lives out after spending time with Jesus as takers of trouble for the gospel. Obviously, one of the sons of Zebedee is James, became the first apostolic martyr. He got to live and die for the sake of the name. He did actually drink the cup. He had no idea what he was asking. I think that's kind of funny. But you can see that he changed after walking with Jesus. And the other one, the other son, is the guy who wrote this letter. How cool is that? that? The Bible gives us those awesome stories. That's John. John who answered, yeah, I can take that. Probably a, what, 16-year-old kid. Yeah, I can do that. No, you can't, dude. You don't have any idea. You're not living for the sake of the name. But he does. He sees what the changing of a life happens whenever you walk with Christ. When you see the death, burial, and resurrection of the risen Christ right in front of your eyes. I mean, this is a guy who was boiled in oil later, right? And exiled to Patmos. He learned what it was like to take trouble for the gospel. That's a beautiful picture for us. If you are here and you've been on one side or you're on one side and you realize I'm kind of a diatrophies, I kind of don't get what it lives, looks like to live for the sake of the name. What great news. Look at the author of our, the apostle John here. It's beautiful, and it's hope for all of us. So we celebrate that. We celebrate this by drinking the cup of the wrath, right? We, what Jesus drank. We drink, we drink um, the juice to, to celebrate what Jesus did when he drank the cup of wrath. And we eat of the bread to celebrate what Jesus did when he uh, broke his body for us. 
And so as we take communion today, I invite you, if you are in Christ, please take it with us. And if not, if you don't know what it looks like to live for the sake of the name, um, please don't. Take Christ instead. Uh, one, one thing I, I wanted to mention, as we take communion today, there's a song I thought of that kind of really envelops what John's life probably looked like. What it looked like to have turned his back on Christ and to have been enclosed by him later on. And to walk in close with Christ and to see what his heart looks like when Christ says, no, I, I never left you. I was always here waiting for you to turn around. So after we pray, I want you to meditate on some of those lyrics as we take communion today. So let's pray. Jesus, we celebrate your name today. Protect us from celebrating our own. We will be forgotten in a few generations, and we don't like to meditate on that or dwell on that, but all of the things that we do, accomplish or even failures, uh, our name will be left in the dust, and what we leave behind will be the things that we've done in your name. That's what will count forever. And so, uh, please, God, let us receive this rebuke today. And we ask that you would crush the diatrophies in our hearts that would cause us to put ourselves first and to even use uh, your church, your people, to get advantage or to get power or to get respect and authority and take pride in that God. Uh, beat down the pride in our hearts and let us delight in your name, God. Nothing is more humbling for us than to dwell and to think about and to meditate upon the cross as we eat this bread and as we drink this wine, we remember that there was a great cost for you. Uh, you did not die on the cross because we are awesome. You did not go to the cross because we are great and have, had, have done so many good things. You went to the cross because we are sinful and wicked and someone had to pay for that. You're a just God and you don't just look the other way, Jesus. And so we look at the cross and we see our sin and we see how low we are but we also see how great you are and we see that you love us anyway and that you don't just leave us in a place of arrogance and self-centeredness but you come and rescue us and you carry us into the future and the future is good, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for loving us. Help us to treat other people the same way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.